from Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with a professional dancer about what it's like to live with autism, how she handles rejection, why standing up is so important to her, and what life is like as a gay Catholic. There's a moment in the conversation you're about to hear where I ask Sydney Magruder Washington what she identifies as first. I ask that because in a world where we are all multifaceted, Sydney fits into a lot of categories that are often misunderstood. She's black, a professional ballerina, a lesbian woman living in New York City with her wife. She's autistic and a mental health warrior. She's Catholic. In short, Sydney and I are complete opposites, which is why I cherish our friendship so deeply. I was weirder than I am now, if you can believe it. Um, I was a, I was such a nerd, um, and I'm still one. I, it's very strange. I was a different kid at different times in my life, and I think that's true of most people, but it was true of me because I was dealing with so much bullying that I felt like I had to be a different person depending on where I was. Um, but I was, oh, sorry, bud. I was n- nerdy and weird and compassionate and loving and very sweet and good-natured and a problem solver from a really young age and I lived in my own little world I was I was concerned with how other people treated me and I was concerned with fitting in um but I was I have always definitely like lived in my head I have even at the times where I've craved like connection or craved like friendship or anything like that at the end of the day I was still content like being in my head and being in my own little world so would you consider yourself more of an introvert oh for sure yeah which is funny because I think that a lot of people assume that public figures are extroverted because you're comfortable in front of a camera like you do those things all the time but it's but it but that doesn't necessarily mean that the way that you recharge is with other people Absolutely. Like I, being a, having been a dancer for so long and having done a lot of, you know, uh, obviously a ton of performances and, you know, as I got older, spots on TV and, you know, film stuff, that's fine because it's my job and because it's come, it comes with the territory. But if I want to recharge and feel better, I opt for being by myself. I'm exactly the same way. I always joke that, um, I joke that I married the one person I can bear to spend longer than an hour and a half with, <laughs> which is somewhat true. I mean, I do, the friends I have and do spend time with, I love to pieces. Um, but my wife is, I can count on one hand the number of people who I can spend an entire day with and not get bored um, or not want to just retreat into myself. Right. Um, and my wife is number one on that list. That's, that's such a great way of describing it. I think that describes most marriages honestly that's how that's the criteria you should have exactly (laughs) like who is the person who I can live with literally on a constant basis yeah I kind of think that my husband fits into the same category also there's a lot of people who after I spend I want to say that like six hours with them I'm just like girl you got to take a step back exactly whoever it is like I need or it's like I need to leave 
Like you right. don't have to do anything. I will go. <laughs> I, I will remove myself from this situation. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned that you're a dancer, which is probably the first thing that most people would know about you. How did you become a dancer? Have you just been dancing since you're tiny? Like how did yes. that happen? I started dancing when I was three. So that's and, tiny. Yes, <laughs> tiny. Um, and my mother was a dancer and her mother was a dancer. So it was kind of, I had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and my older sisters didn't dance. Um, they're too tall, actually. There That's is such a thing. A, there is such a thing in dance as, and especially in ballet, as being just too tall for it to work really? out. Like, like your body is just not going to be able to exactly. Do and they're neither of them are exactly. Neither of them are particularly coordinated either. So they they gravitated more towards like my one sister was like a championship track runner, um, and the other was very very good at soccer. Um, and they both have, you know, kind of evolved into different practices in life as far as their careers. I'm the only, I'm the only person in my family who's pursued the arts as a career full-time from jump, like never had another, like I didn't, I didn't start out doing something else and, you know, change, change it up, but I've always wanted to be an artist of some design. That's very cool. So you're, so you take, there's a big difference between taking dance lessons when you're three and being where you are now and a professional working dancer. So what was that, like, what was the progression like? At what point, I'm assuming that at some point you needed to make a decision that was, okay, this is my job. Like, this is what I'm yes. going to do. So like, how old were you when you made that decision? Most dancers, myself included, make that decision as teenagers. So um, like 17? Um, like 14. Oh, 14, wow. Because then you have to like, that's when a lot of heavy training starts. Like, you know, from the time you're three to about 12 or 13, it's pretty much fun and games. Like, right. you, know, you get better, you get stronger. It's your extracurricular. But at 13 or 14, you know, you start looking into going into ballet school full time or going to a performing arts high school or, you know, or a lot of people, I had friends that did drop out of school and do and were did online school or homeschool so that they could audition so that they could book shows. Um, and that has, I've watched people do that. Um, but when we're in high school, we make that decision, like, this is going to be my career. And a lot of us have ideas as to what we might do, you know, if dance doesn't work out, God forbid you have like a career ending injury or something like that. Um, which I've seen, which I've also seen happen. That must be heartbreaking. It's, it's the, it's the worst. I've seen a lot of tragic things in life. And one of them is someone's career being cut short because of an injury. Um, and you know, we all, a lot of us have ideas of what we'd like to do if dance doesn't work out. I think we all have, that's a fun, that's always a question I get in dance related interviews is like, what would you be doing if you weren't dancing? Um, and a lot of us have to make that decision early on in life and have something on the back burner just in case. But if you can make dance work as a career, then it's, it's worth it. And I'm not even where I want to be career wise yet. Like I'm not, I'm actually not even close to where I want to be career wise yet. So the thought that there could be more for me is encouraging. That's very cool. It's, it's so interesting that that idea of a, like a back, a, a backup plan, like a plan B, it's something that is so consistent among so many different creative careers. Like I even got, when I've decided that my major in college was going to be fashion and textiles, someone was like, right, but what are you going to do when that doesn't work out? I was like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. Like, I'll, right. like I'll, I'll make it happen somehow. Um, and it's, I, I think that I almost made a conscious decision to not have a plan B. It was like, 
we're just going to figure this out one way or another. Like it's, it's going to need to happen. There are two camps of people. There are people who say you should not if even entertain the idea of a plan B because it takes, they believe it takes integrity from your effort towards your plan A. Right. And then there are some people who see the necessity of a plan B, but don't think too much about it. Don't like lean on it too heavily, that kind of thing. I fall somewhere in the middle where I'm like, I have a plan B. Unfortunately, it's also a creative pursuit, but it's one that's a little more consistent, a little more reliable. And I have a plan C if neither of those work out, but I'm not attached to my plan B or my plan C. Um, I'm attached to my plan A. And I'm also attached, I'm attached to other things in life that if I, if God forbid I did have some sort of career ending injury, um, I could be happy, I could be happy doing something else. And that's what they say there. If you're going to have a plan B or a plan C, make sure you'd be just as happy. Right. I think that's also so important. It's funny because I think that in my brain, my plan B was always like, I'll work for someone else who has a fashion company. Like I always knew that I wanted to be in this field. But like, you don't know if going out on your own, whether that's like as a freelance performer or as a business owner, if that's something that's really going to work. Oh, for sure. It's the worst because there, again, there are two camps of people. There are people who say that like, oh, if this doesn't work out, I'm leaving this field completely and I'm never coming back. Or if this doesn't work out, I will step to the sidelines of this field. And in that situation, I fall in the, I fall in the former camp, like, if dance does not work out or if I, if, I, if I don't achieve my career goals as a dancer, I'm one of those people who I will never show up to another performance. I will, right. you will not catch me at the Met next season. You will not see me at Radio City next season. Like I will not go to another performance like ever in life because I'm one of the, I'm all or nothing. Um, and if it doesn't work out or if I get my heart broken too badly over it, then I, I would be one of those people who just never shows up again. Right. I'm sure that I'm sure that rejection is something that you've dealt with. It's just it's a part of life, and it's even more so a part of a performer's life. Um, how do you handle that? Like, Not well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone handles it well, and anyone who tells you they do is lying. By the and way. you know, but honestly, I have seen people who handle it well, um, and though, but those are the people who don't have a history of self worth or self esteem issues which I did not know that people like that existed. Yeah, and then seriously. I met, I, had, I, mean, I met a friend a friend recently who like is just a very chill, calm, confident person, handles rejection well. Um, and I was like, where did you come from? Yeah. Like, how are you like this? Right. And she was like, I don't know. I've always, I've never had any issues with my self-esteem. I've never had any issues with my self-worth. And I was like, what was that like? Yeah, power like, to that you. Must, that must have been nice. Um, and but of course she's also about five ten, blonde hair, blue eyes, drop dead gorgeous. Um, so there was never any there was never anyone to tell her that she should have an issue with her self worth or her self esteem because right. she is a runway model, you right. know she's drop dead gorgeous. And so I, I do still harbor a tiny bit of bitterness about what I went through as a kid because it makes it so hard for me to handle rejection and being let down and, you know, not getting something and self-worth and self-esteem issues now, even in adulthood. Um, So I am still a little bit mad about that. And that of all the problems that I've had to surmount in life, 
that is the hardest and that is the one I have yet to solve. And those are those are the issues you said like around with bullying as a kid and yeah, like self self esteem stuff. That is what I I've I have I won't say solved, but I have you know like neatly kind of folded over some of those other problems and found kind of coping strategies and solutions to other issues that I have. Um, but when it comes to like my ability and my physical looks and things like that, I have not quite figured that out yet. I don't really think that there's anyone who fully has. Like, I bet that if I was talking to this friend that you're thinking of, who is this drop dead runway model, I bet that if, I bet that if I had like a, a deep conversation, she would tell you that she feels self-conscious about her something. Like, I, I, I really oh, truly I think like, that everyone has something. I needled her about this for like days. I was like, I think of anything. anything. I was like, do you not like anything about yourself? Do you like everything about yourself? And she was like, she was like, you know, we all have things we could work on. But she was talking about like character stuff. She was like, I could be a little more forward. I could be like a little. Right. I could be a little less timid sometimes. And I was like, is that it? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I have way better things to add to that. I I was like, I literally have a running list. Um, And it's just, I, so there are people do, people like that do exist. We know we can think of one in the entire world, and it's this person. So, exactly. Okay. Right. But like between our two networks, we can think of one person. So exactly. we'll just say so shouts out to my homegirl for that. But yeah, we're not. Th- th- she's probably not. Well, we know that she's not the norm, and that most people struggle with that on some kind of level. Um, I'm curious how, because you're really an anomaly in the dance world. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I don't know that much about the dance world. But, like, I know that Misty Copeland's is a big freaking deal, partly because she's Black. Like, because she was, like, this first Black uh, principal dancer, um, and that was in it. And it, I think it was around when that happened, which was a couple of years ago, that that was when I started, like, just realizing it because it was just part of the zeitgeist and it wasn't something. I'm not part of the dance world and I'm not part of the Black community, so it wasn't something that I had really thought about, I guess. And then, I, and then through following you, I start learning more and more about the really like ingrained just like intense racism that can exist in the ballet world which you consider yourself a part of um how does that like how does that show up in your work like how does that uh, does that affect the way that you work or do you just need to consciously decide that you're going to ignore all of that it does affect the way that I work it my agent will give me she'll send me job or job opportunities or like auditions, and I, I have, I will, I have, I will, and I will continue to turn opportunities down that do not portray myself or other Black people, specifically Black women, in a positive and uplifting light. And if it is, if the story is sad or if it's a drama, um, I need to have the whole picture before I say yes to something what do you consider a positive light? Like, cause there's always like, there's an argument to be made that like in drama, you need flawed characters, right? You need- Oh, for sure. Right. I'm saying that I'm tired of black women playing slaves. I'm tired of black women playing prostitutes. I'm tired of black women playing the help. I want more complex and dynamic characters for us. On stage, on, as, as in dance and in acting, like I, I am a dancer, I'm also an actor. Right. So- I, I just have, I need to look at something from all angles before I agree to it. And I also need to look at the way other people are being portrayed in 
you know, in the, in a show or in a role or in a, in a workshop, I will not take anything that mocks, mocks another race or color. I will not take anything that mocks Jews or Muslims. I will not take anything that mocks those with disabilities or I, you know, I am very, very selective and careful or I try to be um, about what I do and what I, what the opportunities that I do take. Right. So it's, it's funny because when you, it, there's so many things to be aware of, right? Like it's, as just just speaking for myself, like as a human, right? I don't want to be like, I don't want to be racist. I don't want to be looking at specific, like as black people, Latino people, brown people, whatever, as different. I don't want to be looking at disabled people as different, whether that's mentally or physically. I don't want to be looking at Muslims or Catholics or Christians or whoever as different than I am. But that's a lot to keep track of, (laughs) you know, like that's a lot. But you do want to look at us, you do want to look at us as different. You know, if, 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 you believe as I believe, and I know that you do, that, you know, God creates each person, right? right? And God makes us all different for a reason. When you look at the tapestry that is humanity, that should, that should be something that is awe-inspiring. That difference should be something that inspires in you gratitude to God for his diversity and thought. I guess when I say different, I mean, like, I don't want to say worse because I don't mean that. Like I don't automatically think less is the key. Right. Exactly. Like just not, it's very, I come from a very sheltered background in that up until literally the time that I was in college, the entirety of my education was in Jewish private schools. So my first co-ed experience was when I was a freshman in college. My first experience with a boy in my classroom was when I was in was when I was in college. Uh, my first expre- um, experience with someone who did not look literally exactly like me was when I was in college. And that was a totally different experience. It was totally different um, to just to, not only just to realize that there are all these different people, which I knew before, it's not like I grew up under a rock, right? Um, but to really spend time with people that are different than I am. And it's, you and I have the best relationship which is amazing because we are literally opposite in every single way, like right down to the religions that we practice and the, uh, like the, the color of our skin and the fact that you have a wife and I have a husband and that's like, it's, and we get along great. And I love that that's something that we, that like, I just think that's great that people can come, can go on that journey. But I also think that sometimes it just gets really overwhelming. Like you talk a lot about mental health and neurodiversity and you also talk a lot about racism and you also talk a lot about the competitiveness of the dance world and also a lot about anti-semitism and things like that and like how do you how does that exist all in your brain at once is that just overwhelming or do you focus on different things at different times i focus on different things at different times like some i will something will come up one day and I'll discuss that. And then something else will come up the next day and I'll discuss that. And things like this don't take a break. You know, racism doesn't take a break. Anti-Semitism doesn't take a break. These things don't take a break. It's not, not important one day and important the next. It's that something will come to my mind. And that's, that's one of actually the benefits of having autism is I have a galaxy brain. (laughs) I am always, always, always thinking I'm a detail-oriented person who thinks large picture for about five minutes and then kind of zones back in on something. 
So your uh, brain just literally works differently from mine. Oh, for sure. And I am, when people say, you know, quiet your mind or, you know, bring us, bring stillness to your mind. I'm like that. What is that like? That must be nice. Cause I could, my mind is going a mile a minute at all times. Like going to sleep is an adventure. <laughs> like I have to literally like try to turn my brain, if not off, just mute it right. for six to eight hours at a time. And even my dreams are very vivid. And so I am, I'm constantly tired. I feel like I never get enough rest because my mind is just going, going, going all the time. How old were you when you realized that your brain was different from most of the people around you? Uh, probably eight or nine. Oh, but it so like took me really until like... I, it took me to get an official diagnosis of autism. It took me until earlier this year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So those in between years, did you just like, do you just think that you're weird? Like how yes. does that? I thought I was broken. Yikes. For, for the majority of my life, I thought I was broken and lazy and stupid. And in the, when in reality, I am smarter than most of the people. Yeah, literally, you just described that your brain can hold more information than mine on a, like, just on the way that you think. I, I don't know that, I don't know if you watch Sherlock, but there's yes. the, the Mind Palace. Yes. Was the most accurate description of my brain I've ever heard from somebody besides myself. I'm going to link that episode um, in the show notes so that people can go and watch it. Sherlock is a fabulous show. It is, uh, it is the best representation of Sherlock Holmes probably yeah. ever. I would, uh, want, I would agree with that. And my mom, who is the biggest, like, not only just literature nerd, but specifically Sherlock Holmes fan and nerd would 100% agree. 100%. And yeah. the, the idea and the kind of drawing out of the mind palace... I remember watching that episode and I paused it and I was like, he said it. <laughs> this <laughs> he is said how the yeah. words. This <laughs> is how my brain it. works. Um, and it's just, it's a blessing and a curse because I don't have very, I, there's so much, there's so much that I do struggle with being autistic, but there's also um, a lot of benefits to it. I just am, I'm a little more, I feel like I'm more tapped into I'm less tapped into the people around me and more tapped into the world. Okay. What do you mean um, by that? I, for reasons I can't, for reasons I don't understand, I have, it's in other people, it's called synesthesia where numbers have colors and sort of, and you, uh, random things are associated with sound or color in your brain. I wouldn't say I have synesthesia. I have, I think it's part of my autistic brain. For me, music and music has color. Um, sounds do have color. People's voices have colors to me, and I like. I was I was just laughing with my therapist about this the la last week. Um, her office is on the tenth floor of a building, and when I go into the waiting room, she shares an office. It's a large office space with other therapists. And when I go into the waiting room, you can't see around the corner where the offices are. You can only hear people coming, and probably my fourth or fifth time there, I stood up and kind of met her at the doorway. And she was like, how did you know I was coming? I was like, I heard your footsteps. I know your footsteps now. Like I know the length of her your specific stride. footsteps. Yeah. And like, you know, other people had come down the, other people had come down the hallway and I was like, it's not her. It's not her. And then I heard the sound of her. I heard like the cadence of her footsteps, the length of her stride. And I was like, there she is. And she was like, how did you know, how did you know that was me? Did, and I was like, I heard your footsteps. Um, 
and I kind of, I didn't hear her voice, but I heard her. People have sounds to me sometimes. It's very, it's very strange. It's hard to explain. Um, but I do feel like, I feel like my world, my mind is a lot more colorful than most people's. It sounds like it based on what you're describing. It sounds like you notice things that most people wouldn't. Oh, for sure. Like just that you just take note of things that most people would either dismiss or just, or just not even realize were even happening. How, like, how liberating was it to get the diagnosis earlier this year? How long had you lived without a diagnosis? All my life up till then. Wow. Um, It was the single most liberating thing I've ever done outside of coming out to my friends and family. Um, Because I don't think of, I am in the camp of people that does not think of autism necessarily as a disability. I think we classify it as a disability in our society because of the way we treat people who are disabled and the way we treat autistic people and disabled people um, makes it so that our existence is a disability when in reality, people could just be better to us, society could be better to us and accommodate us for who we are. but it was, the, it was, like I said, the single most liberating thing I've ever done outside of coming out. And it just made me able to advocate for myself. It made me able to ask for what I need in certain situations. It may be, I, underst- I have understood myself on a, on a level heretofore unknown to me because you were able to take all of these feelings and all these, like you, it's not like your brain started working differently once you were diagnosed. It was no, just, I was able to explain myself to right. myself. <laughs> right, exactly. Able, able to take what it was that was happening and articulate it in that exactly. way. Um, I want to touch on what you said about how we treat uh, people who we consider to have disabilities or, or something like that. There's a lot of things that kind of fall into that category. I deal with that a lot in my line of work around, um, like, uh, around size and around body positivity, um, just because that's a, a lot of people tell me their stories that they've had negative experiences with, um, either in stores or while shopping or at a doctor's office where they can't get a real diagnosis because, uh, you know, if you're over a certain weight, a doctor will just say you need to lose weight and then you'll feel yeah. better and then they do and then nothing happens. Right. Um, and the problem there is not necessarily the person's size. The problem there is the fact that the doctor will not look at their actual symptoms until they're below a certain weight. Outright fat phobia. Yeah. Like exactly like that outright fat phobia that way. Um, what are some of the things like what if someone is let's say listening to this and doesn't have experience with someone who is autistic or as you say a lot of times neurodiverse um what are some of the things that you want everyone to know um just like maybe just two little tips if you come across an autistic person you should know this what's one way that people can be more sensitive and attuned to um to what neurodiverse people need Honestly, get to know us individually. Ask us because no two neurodiverse people are completely alike. It's worth it to it's worth it to when you encounter a neurodiverse person in your life say, "Hey, I want to be um a friend and an ally to you. What do you need from me? How can I help you? How can I make this environment um better for you? How can I what can I do?" Right. That question is that question always means a lot and sometimes we won't be able to answer you right then and there. Sometimes it'll be a minute before we can actually say what we want to say. Um, but the, pa- the willingness to ask and the patience and the, the flexibility and the agility of those who 
can help us and can bring change around us and for us, that matters a lot. I think that's so true with most things. It like, is. Yeah, just talk to people. Like, just talk to people and find out how it is that, you know, how can I help you? How can I make this space better for you? How can I make this more inviting for whatever whatever the other person is? It's also just like a good, it's just a way to be a good person. Think about someone else. You know, exactly. Think about what other people are going through. Um, you mentioned coming out. Um, and I, I have a couple of questions about this. I Ooh. am approaching this as a very straight person. Yeah. Um, and I'm, to me, I know that also that you, um, that you are Catholic as well. I am. Um, and I'm curious how the, if, if there's like a reconciliation that needs to happen between those two, because mainstream Catholicism, like pretty much every single mainstream religion, um, is not like, is going to tell you that, uh, that like to be gay is bad or a sin or whatever. And we can debate that to kingdom come. And I don't think it's important or, irre or relevant what, people think I think that it's personally I just think it's important to treat everyone with respect whether or not you agree or disagree with their life choices just as a general rule um did you grow up Catholic I did not I grew up I um so I think I'll add here I know most of your listeners are um Jewish like you and may not know that there are multiple branches of Christianity um in Christianity there are generally uh two kind of, you know how you have Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform Judaism? Sure. Yeah. We have, there's Catholic and Protestant Christian. Okay. I learned I this in history class. What did you say? I learned this in history class. There you go. <laughs> um, so I grew up in a sect of Protestantism called Pentecostalism. Oh, I was just speaking with Leah Fulp, um, who is also Pentecostal. It's an episode yeah, that, it was, that is a couple... Mm -hmm. It was um, a weird time. Yeah. <laughs> it was a weird time. But my father is Catholic. Um, okay. And so there was, there was always Catholic influence in my life. Um, so I have always, I have been, I've been a Christian my entire life. Um, I decided I wanted to be Catholic as a young adult, probably didn't get around to getting baptized until this earlier this past year. Um, it has... I have had a long, have had so many long talks with so many different people about this. And first of all, one's sexuality is not a choice. You're born, right. born one way or the other. Um, and I think following that, there isn't anything to agree with or disagree with. It's whether or not you um, feel able to support someone for who they are organically. And I think when I hear people use the language of, you know, agreeing with a lifestyle, it's not your lifestyle to agree with, and it's not a lifestyle at all. It's just a condition of, you know, that's like, if you said that about a straight person, somebody would look at you like you were nuts, right? Right. And I think being gay, you know, if I, and I think a lot of, a, another erroneous thing I hear a lot is that like, oh, I didn't choose this, so I wouldn't have chosen it if I could. I don't, I don't know what I would have chosen if I, if that was something I had the ability to choose. Right. Like if, if humans had the ability to choose their sexuality, I think we'd be having a lot of different conversations. Right. Um, I don't know what I, it's not a curse to me. Um, I regard, I regard being gay with, with not, with not even quite the same significance as I regard being black. 
um, I regard them very differently. Which, um, which, when you say that you regard them as not the same significance, do you put being black as more or less significant than being gay? I'm always going to be black first. Okay. Over everything, I'm going to be black first. Is that because that's immediately obvious when you see you, or is that yes. just be, yeah, just because when I look at you, that's something I know immediately. Exactly. And that, that's what everyone sees first about me. That's what I see first about myself. That's what my, that's what my parents taught me to see first about myself is my identity as a black woman. And they have always, I grew up in a household where it was, I grew up in a household where it was very important to, to be black. Right. And, to, you know, my parents put black role models in front of me from the time I was a child. Um, I never, in my, deep in, deep in my mind, I never thought like, oh, I can't do that because I'm black. I just was one of those kids who was like, well, maybe I'll be the first or maybe I'll be the second or whatever. Um, but that pride is different. And I don't, I am, I'm not ashamed of being gay, not even a little bit. Um, I do regularly attend pride celebrations when it's that time of year. Um, my wife and I are very open about our lives. We don't hide. I have never once hidden it since coming out. I have never once hidden the fact that I'm gay from anyone. Um, because also because my wife is my best friend and she's my, you know, second favorite topic of conversation. <laughs> so, um, I, I have always thought that first, well, also, sorry, I keep backtracking in the Catholic church specifically being gay is not the sin. Okay. Acting on, it, acting on it is, and I have giant air quotes around acting on it because that is just right. What is what? I a, can't roll my eyes far it, enough into exactly. If I roll my eyes any further, they'll get stuck. Right. Um, but there has been so much theology, so much theology in recent years around like, well, hold on, like that doesn't make any sense. What if, like, how can you tell? How can you tell a gay person that their acts are intrinsically immoral when a straight person could be doing something similar and it's immoral, but it's not as bad? Like, how is that, right. how is that fair or right or okay? Well, also, I think that, and again, this is based on super limited knowledge on my part. And correct me if I'm wrong, please. Yeah. But like in Catholicism, the ideal is to be celibate, right? Under any circumstance, like a priest doesn't get married and is like held in this very high regard, right? So it depends, it depends on your, so we have what, I'm not sure what the corresponding term in Judaism is, but you know, your vocation, your purpose right. in life. And there are, in, 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 in Catholicism and Catholic culture, we say that there are several vocations. You may be called to a um, vocation in the priesthood or to consecrated life as a priest or a nun or a sister or a brother. You may be called to marriage you know, a, a partnership in the Catholic church, a partnership between a man and a woman that is open to life, no use of birth control, um, no right. use of hormonal birth control or condoms or anything like that. Um, or you may be called to celibacy. So celibacy is not necessarily the ideal. It is an option that okay. is held in high esteem one way or the other. Got it. Okay. So then, but like to say that like, it's not, it's fine to be gay. Just like, don't do anything about it is kind of it's kind of ridiculous. It's cruel, right? Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. And listen, again, um, I come from a space like, like to be gay is not accepted in, certainly not in Orthodox circles. Um, personally, 
I don't care. Like it doesn't, it doesn't affect me either way or another. Like if I had um, a, a close friend who came out to me or something like that, I would be like, cool, awesome. Do you want to go do the thing that we were already going to do? It doesn't, I, right. I personally don't have strong feelings um, anti, and I know that there are plenty of people listening to this who might, um, and that's fine. You, you're allowed to have your opinion so long as you don't inhibit the way that other people live their lives. That to me is where things get really, really sticky, where it's like, well, when you're going to start dictating the most private portions of someone's life, it's like, stay in your own lane. Like, it's, that to me is just, I'm not, that I can't really wrap my brain around. I can't wrap my brain around the desire to want to regulate someone else's intimate life. It's very strange, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's, it's a little a, weird. It's a uniquely, it's a uniquely straight thing to do. <laughs> um, and it's, it's very strange. I get the dumbest questions from people. Oh, can uh, I have like the top, the top two super dumb questions you get? I don't know if I can repeat them on this oh, podcast. Oh, okay. I know, I, I know your audience and I don't think. Okay. I, okay. Know, I'm, not we'll try, I'm, we'll not, I'm not going to corrupt anyone. <laughs> um, but it's, it's very strange because in in Christian teaching, as I think in Jewish teaching, the idea is that um, God gives you a sexuality. Sexuality is a gift to be used responsibly, obviously, right. um, but it is a gift. It is not inherently bad. But then to say that, oh, hey, wait, your sexuality that is also given by God is bad because it's not the same as this person's, that doesn't make theological yeah. sense. Those two things can't both be true. Exactly. There's a lot of situations in which two things can be true. This is not one of them. Right. And so to say that someone's sexuality or acts of sexuality are inherently sinful because they are not the same as another person's is cruel to me. And the in the Catholic Church, the reasoning behind it is that, um, oh, um, any sexual act that is not ordained towards procreation or the creation of life is is selfish and is immoral but then what does that say about infertile couples right and you what know? does that say about just the fact that like having sex is good for your marriage whether or not you are like whether you're gay or straight or whatever you should be having sex with your spouse, spouse. Yeah. yeah like and that's like the idea is that no one um a lot of older Christians and Catholics think that we are advocating for some sort of radical change to everything. No, sexual morality is still a thing. I for one am, I for one am and have always been of the opinion that, hey, you should probably wait to have sex until you get married. Right. Um, it doesn't matter. But my thing has always been like my, my theology of this has been no matter your sexuality, you should be waiting until you get married to have sex. Point right. blank. Um, no matter who you're marrying, you should wait because it's what God wants for you. And it is spiritually and mentally and emotionally and physically healthier for you. I have always been in that camp. And I am even, I am looked at as conservative in circles of gay people who still are religious. This just proves that there's always going to be someone who is more than you and someone who is less than you. Exactly. I I have this, I have this theory that it's like, people ask me all the time, are your dresses modest? And I, my answer to that is I would wear everything on my line. Whether you consider me to be modest is something that I can't 
control. answer for you. It's like, I can, I can give you like, I can give you measurements. I can give you seam lengths. I can give you all of that. You need to make your own decision. There's always going to be someone who does more. There's always going to be someone who does less in everything, yeah. by the way. And um, I know in Orthodox Judaism, the standards of modesty vary by sect. Yeah. Oh, completely. That are way, way more, way more covered. And there are, and there are some sects that are still modest, but it's right. not as stringent. Yeah. Listen, I've had it, I've had it told to me by, you know, by store owners or by people, how could you possibly sell things that are this revealing? People actually wear this. It's like garbage. And people have said that to my face. And my answer to that is you obviously disagree with a lot of people who right. dress like this. And right. it's, and it's, and it's always going to vary. Um, when you, when you decided to come out, was the, was there backlash? Like, was that, was, was that like, a, obviously it was a major event in your life. Um, but what was the reaction like? Um, I did it piecemeal. I did not, my parents, my parents are divorced and they were divorced at the time. Um, I told my mother, for, well, I told my friends first in person. Right. Um, like friend by, like person by person. And they were like, oh, cool. Um, well, we support you. You know, like I went to a very small liberal arts college um, where I think that I would, I would venture to say probably a quarter of the student population was gay or lesbian. So like, um, it wasn't yeah. even that exciting. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was not even the news of the day, you know? <laughs> um, and I told my, I remember I told my parents and they were fine. Um, I think they were shocked, not shocked, but just like, pl like surprised a little bit. Like, Oh, I, I wouldn't have guessed that. Exactly. I think my dad looking like, in retrospect, I remember a couple of years later, um, in retrospect, my dad was like, you know what, looking back, I think I might have known, but I don't think I paid attention to it because you were never, like, I was not that teenage girl. I was not boy crazy as a teenage girl. I had, I was so busy with school and dance and theater. I was so busy doing what I was supposed to be doing <laughs> that I didn't have time to get into anything or get into any trouble. I've been a goody two-shoes my entire life. Um, I was never trouble. I never snuck out. I wasn't, you know, my parents, my parents left me in the house by myself on weekends, like on weekend evenings, Same. if they had stuff to do yeah. all the time because they knew I would be right there when they were <laughs> Yeah, same. So I wasn't cool same. enough to be invited to anything fun anyway. So I was just like- A couple, I, maybe like two years ago, me and a bunch of my close friends from high school tried to figure out, they were like, why were we so boring? Like we do all the same fun things now that everyone does, but why were we so boring? And the truth is that we were just, we were just fine to hang out like the four of us girls and have a good time and like eat pizza and talk about glee. Like exactly. that was perfectly fine for us. And like, I was also, I've always been a person who like, Hey, if I don't have to, if I don't have to do, I don't want to get in trouble. Right. I am a rule follower. I'm afraid of getting in trouble. I don't want to do anything wrong either because like, I know, I knew my parents trusted me. <laughs> so I was like, I, let me not mess that up. But yeah. like, let, let me just, let me just chill. And plus, and plus the, all the cool kids who were out, drinking partying or whatever I didn't that was not fun to me yeah like exactly. that just genuinely was not fun to me I did not deep down I did not really care about being cool I did on the surface like you know my surface self cared about being cool but deep down I was like nah I don't care yeah <laughs> I, I got better, better I got better things to do truly better things to do much more many more movies to watch many more books to read um but there was, there was briefly some backlash from a very close family member. And I told this family member who 
has been, you know, my, who have, we have been joined at the hip since I was born. Um, I told this family member, I was like, either you get with the program or you never speak to me again. You have two choices. And they got with the program. <laughs> and they figured it out. <laughs> they got, they figured it out. That must have um, been a hard ultimatum to give though. It was not. It wasn't. It was what? not. And I've given, I am, I don't know how you feel about horoscopes, but the older I get, the more I trust them a little bit. Um, I am a Scorpio and okay. we, are, we are known savages. <laughs> we are known savages to any and everyone who gets in our way. And I am, I'm a benevolent Scorpio though, because I'm a Hufflepuff. And so, <laughs> Scorpio I, and a Hufflepuff, that's a good combination. It's a very strange combination where apparently we're rare. Yeah. Um, but I, I knew that I was getting older. I was 19 or 20 at this. I had, I, it's all happened in the year, the year and a half leading up to meeting my wife. Um, and I was just ready to, I was ready to be myself. I was ready to be happy. I was ready to live life on my terms um, because I never felt like I had the opportunity to do that prior to then. And so I was like, it was not a hard ultimatum to give. I was like, either you get with the program and you respect me for who I am and you, you know, are on my side or you are not. And we don't speak again, period. Right. Like this is, this is what I need to make my life function right now. Exactly. And, and it seemed like the timing worked out pretty great for you. It did. While, while all this is happening, you're still pursuing your career as a dancer and all of that with this undiagnosed autism. Um, from my very stereotypical view, which I think is kind of accurate of the dance world, it's super regimented and like be in the right place at the right time with the right body and the right attitude and shut up and do what I tell you. Yeah. So how does that, that, that seems as a neurotypical person, that seems like something that would be difficult for me to do, ignoring the fact that I can't dance and I'm completely uncoordinated. But even if I had that skill, let's assume for a second. Um, See, the regiment was the easy part. Really? Yeah. I, my brain loves organization. My brain loves routine. I love regularity and symmetry. So dance gave me all of that. Was it emotionally healthy? No. But was it... Um, <clears throat> Did it satisfy my autistic brain? Absolutely. From a, from a spatial and kind of order standpoint, did it satisfy my brain that way? 100% it did. Knowing that um, you needed to be in that, in that studio at that time, doing that thing is, is exactly the, what The exercises did. are systematic. I know, I know what's coming next. <clears throat> I, I know what's coming next. I know exactly what to expect. I know how long we're going to be doing it. Um, I know I have concrete tips for improving it. Like it's very, very specific, very orderly, very, you know, step by step. And that was not the problem. The regiment, the being regimented was not the problem. Most, I think I speak for a lot of autistic people and I'm in a, I'm in a couple of support groups and, you know, we all have memes about this, but, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of us on the spectrum do love order and we love that the routine and the relaxation that comes in routine and not having to think about the next thing or knowing what you have to think about if it's something different. Right. Like, and being able to very easily anticipate what the next thing that is exactly. from you. Okay. You have spoken really openly about your, your mental health in the dance world and how that's not something that people talk about. Um, 
And you've also spoken pretty openly about the fact that you're nearly positive that being so open has cost you jobs. Um, and, and right. So what was the decision? Like, did you make a decision? I'm just going to talk about the fact that I struggle with these mental health issues or, and, and I'm, was it a conscious decision or was it just, I'm sick of pretending like it's not there. Um, and like, how did that, how was that process like of deciding, no, you call yourself a mental health warrior and I would 100% agree. Um, I know just from someone who follows, as someone who follows you, I like, I just, I know so much more about so many things that I have never even given any thought to. And what I can also say is that as a Jewish person following you, I appreciate the fact, because what usually happens um, in these spaces that are very open and accepting to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. Um, when people talk about groups that have been systemically oppressed or ignored or all of that, um, they kind of forget that historically um, Jews take the cake. Like everyone hates us. That's just the way that it works. And I really appreciate the fact that you point that out um, and you talk about anti-Semitism and you talk about all these things did you just, are, are you just always like that? Or did you just decide like, I'm going to fight for all the people? I decided a long time ago that if anything I did help, could or would help one person, that it was worth doing. Because I very strongly believe in the fact that if you are here, if you are here on this planet, you're here for a reason. And no one should be making you feel as though you don't belong or as though you shouldn't be here or as though you are less than or unworthy because when we perpetuate those ideas around people, we isolate people, we condemn people. And that's how we end up with so many marginalized members of society because someone somewhere didn't understand them somewhere in life. They took a turn down a road and no one followed them. Right. And no one asked after them. No one inquired after their well-being. you know, right. And I, I'm a person, one of my core values as a person is integrity. I strive to always mean what I say. I always strive to speak my truth um, and what I know to be true. And I always try to make it so that the person coming after me does not have to clean up my mess. Right, that you're that, leaving this place a better, you're leaving this planet a, in a better condition than you found it. Tikkun olam. The yeah. yeah, you got it. Very central perspective to all of Jewish For anyone life. who might not know, uh, the concept of tikkun olam is, uh, it literally translates to fixing the world. Olam is, is world or planet. Um, and it's, it's pretty much exactly what you just described. It's this concept that, um, that as people, we can, we can fix previous wrongdoings through our own good deeds um, and, and putting that together. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And it's so, it's really, I have to say that as, see, it's interesting because anti-Semitism is something that has been around literally since the beginning of time. Um, and it is something that has become more prevalent in my life recently. My synagogue in the past six months has had to hire an arms guard. Um, and that was considered not even, that it wasn't even like, whereas like two years ago, that would be considered like an extravagance mm -hmm. that you would see at something that was like, just like a really well-funded um, 
a synagogue that just like well unfortunately it's necessary now it's now when it like when it came up it was as like maybe this is something we should do it was like oh no this is something we need to do like we need to have someone outside during prayers every week on saturday morning you know during shabbos when we're all there um and that's something and then as you you know as some things are just not covered mainstream um then it it does i can say that it does feel really it does feel really good to be heard um like it does feel really good even when i see like especially when i see someone like yourself who isn't who is certainly what you would call like an ally but not directly a part of the community pointing out these things like pointing out that when um you know that when there's a shooting at a synagogue most media outlets will not connect that to anti-semitism yeah uh, they'll connect that to gun violence and it's like yes he used a gun but there are but people also been, like right exactly like there have been people who've been doing this with knives and pitchforks and like um not machetes what are those uh things called in the revolutionary war muskets, muskets um yeah. and like muskets like there's those are this has been going on for forever and i definitely know that through the work that you do like i as a jewish person feel seen through that and i can only imagine what um you know all the other groups of people that you talk about how they feel um in that you know in that it 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 matters to be heard like it matters to have these things spoken about it matters to have these things pointed out it absolutely does and white supremacy is a threat to us all yeah and People love to, I can't, I, what I truly never can fathom is when people don't include Jews in speaking about marginalized communities. It's like, do you, it has not even been a century since the Holocaust. Yeah. It has not yet been a century. How could you have so short a memory to forget that, what was it, something like a quarter of the world's Jewish population wiped out? Yeah, a quarter of the European Jewish population. A quarter of Jews. A quarter of the European Jewish population of the world yeah. wiped out because of one man's hatred. That and, a, and a heck of a lot of people who helped. Right. <laughs> and, and a heck of a lot of people who were okay with, who were okay with that, um, who were okay with that vision. Um, and Hitler did not just kill Jews. You know, right. so many, so like, uh, Romani people were sent to camps, um, Gay people, gay and lesbians were gays and lesbians were sent to camps. Right. The the warning bell here is that anytime violence is sparked against Jews, it is coming for the rest of us. You're welcome, world. We take the bullet first, right? <laughs> like, and nobody wants to talk about nobody wants to talk about that because everybody everybody wants everybody wants to lump Jews in with white folks. And yes, you are white passing most of you, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but when I, when I see, when I have all my Jewish, I don't think of, I don't necessarily think of you as white ethnically. I think of you as white passing for sure. But Judaism is an ethno-religious group. It's not just a faith. Right. So it isn't, it isn't though, because like as hard as I try, I can't convert to be black, right? Mm. Like I can't, sure. it's not really a race um, because I can convert to be Jewish. Anyone right. can. Um, it's not something that like as a religion, we don't really like evangelize in that way, but mm-hmm. um, but it is something that you can do. So it is more, it isn't a race. It's just this big group of people who- Well, that's why I call it an ethnicity. It's an ethnicity within, within a lot of other racial categories. Or that's how I think of it because you have a culture unto yourself. 
True. And there's a culture that's separate from the religious practice. That's for sure. Like there's definitely, and there is, and there is a, there is a phenotype. You, you all have those beautiful apple cheeks, those big brown eyes, the curly hair. It's, you know, you have a, well, you're unique... describing Ashkenazi Jews. Exactly. Right. So you me... literally just described my face. Right. Um, most people can't see my curly hair because I wear a wig most of the time, uh, but it's there and it's beautiful. Just putting it out there. And I miss right. it. Um, and like the, yeah. So there is, there is a beauty, there is a beauty to you, like Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardi Jews who, Actually, I've met a Sephardi Jew who looks exactly like me. That was weird. Um, yeah, was- because again, because it's not it's not an ethnicity. So like Sephardi Jews come from Africa. Mm-hmm. There are there are Ethiopian Jews who yes, are who are like super dark skin. Um, right. And the re- I think that the reason why there's like a phenotype or there's a look to it is just because like I always knew and and I'm really proud of the fact that my husband is also Jewish. Like we're we're always gonna for the most part. And I think that this is somewhat separate from the religious practice. Like for me, as a as a practicing religious Jew, um, I always knew, and like, and I was excited and proud of the fact um, that my husband would be Jewish, that we would raise a Jewish family, and and do all of those things. Um, and I think that that like that part of like marrying a Jewish person is something that even if you're not. Um, like religiously committed it's still something that's really important to a lot of people that like at the very least like it's there's always that stereotypical like a Jewish mother being like at the very least you have to marry a Jewish girl you know you have to right um you know keep it keep it in the in the tribe um yeah but it's it's always it it's it, it's like you said it's kind of mind-boggling that when it comes to you know yes we are white passing um but we are also the target of of white supremacy, which is just confusing in its own way because it's really hard for people to see that. Um, and it's really hard for people to recognize that. Um, yeah, so it's it's just this, it's this weird place that we exist in and it's really nice to know that there are people like you out there who appreciate that and recognize that um, and see that as, you know, something that should be pointed out. Um, this was a an amazing just mind opening conversation. I really hope that everyone listening enjoyed it. Um, if I wanted to, uh, to know more about you, Sydney, where can I go to find that out? Um, you should go, you should just go to my Instagram. I am always talking about both important topics and just everyday random foolishness on my stories. Um, yeah, that's it for, that's honestly, okay. you know, awesome. I need to revamp my blog. I have so much, like everything that you would want to know about me, you can find through my Instagram. And it's a really great page. I do highly recommend that everyone uh, take the time uh, to go there. And it is the Black Swan Diaries and it is linked in the show notes. Um, The last question that I want to leave off with that I ask everyone who comes on the show is to you, Sydney, in your personal life, in your professional life, in the way that you move around the world, what does it mean to you to make an impact? It means to leave this place better than I found it. Not just the world, but any room you walk into that room should be richer when you walk out. And you're, and it's up to you to decide how you do that. Thank you so much, Sydney. I really appreciate that. That was awesome. Of course. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. You can access the show notes by swiping up on the cover art. You'll find that episode of Sherlock Sydney mentioned there. It's a great show. Watch it. To hear more episodes, subscribe or head over to impactfashionnyc.com slash blog slash podcast. While you're there, feel free to check out what's new in the world of size-inclusive, modest fashion. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review with your favorite part from this or any other episode. It makes a difference. If you don't have time, a rating also helps. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.